this passage is a two-edged sword. On one side, it cuts into the heart of the true believer and gives us encouragement because we are healed by knowing that our spiritual life is sourced in our, our vital or, or vibrant or essential union with Christ. And we are confident that Christ is a living reality in our hearts because we bear fruit by His power for His glory according to His predestined will because we have been given a living faith that has produced an ever-increasing love for Christ. Oh, but on the other side of the sword, the blade cuts into the professed Christian and they are left with no hope or a hope built on shifting sand because they have no connection to Christ other than what is an outward profession with no real fruit. It is interesting that the Lord Jesus spoke these words to encourage and instruct His apostles. And now that Judas had gone from their presence, presence, each of them hearing these words were Christ's chosen ones. Or they were obviously the Lord's true followers. But the thing that I find interesting is that while speaking to those who were clearly His genuine followers, the Lord addressed the other side of the spectrum or those who were not his true followers, yet professed to be. In verse 2 of the passage, the Lord said, Every branch, notice, in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. There is much controversy over what the Lord meant by each branch in me beareth not fruit, that beareth not fruit. Does this mean that someone can be in Christ and and not bear fruit? Some erroneously or incorrectly believe that this text points to the fact that someone can be saved and, and bear fruit and then, and then cease to bear fruit because they fall from grace or, or lose their salvation. This false proposition was clearly refuted by Christ. And we looked at the passage last time I was here about a month ago and John 11, John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And many other passages of scripture can be cited that fully support the doctrine that once a man is born again, that he can never be lost for how clear it is in John's gospel that he will lose none. Our salvation is eternally secure only because it is based upon the eternal decrees of the Father and it is accomplished by our almighty Savior and it is applied by the irrevocable or unalterable mission of the Holy Spirit. Those who have been chosen by the Father, purchased by Christ and made alive by the Holy Spirit cannot not be saved and be kept by Jesus Christ. Uh, but there are other possibilities of what Christ meant here in 15.2. Uh, I was listening, actually, to a FPC minister 
and on this passage in 15.2, and he gave two possibilities of what the Lord meant by every branch in me that beareth not fruit. He brought to my attention that Arthur Pink had an interesting take on it, that the words, he taketh away, can be translated, he lifted up. As, as the vine would uh, fall onto the ground and grow onto the ground and, and then cease to bear fruit or bear little fruit, and the vine dresser would lift it up and prop it up again so that it might bear more fruit. And Pink would, would propose that this is a reference to a backslidden Christian being lifted up by the Father as the branches would drag on the ground and be lifted up by the vine dresser. But I have to disagree with Pink on this one. The, the, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said that it, it is a matter of uh, punctuation because if you simply add a comma after the word branch, uh, the first time it is used in the verse, you could read it like this. You can read it and say, Every branch that beareth not fruit in me, he casteth uh, away. And I thought long and hard on that one, but because of the context of John's gospel, I must agree with what John Gill said about the text, and he said this, and I quote, there are two sorts of branches in Christ, the vine. The one sort are such who have only a an historical faith in him, believe but for a time, and are removed. They are such who only profess to believe in him. They are in him by profession only. They submit to outward ordinances, become church members, and are, and are so reckoned to be in Christ, being in a church state, as the churches of Judea and Thessalonica and others are said in general to be in Christ, though it is not to be thought that every individual person in these churches were truly and savingly in Christ. I strongly believe that when the Lord said, in me, in the first part of verse 2, he was referring to those who professed to be in him. This would be consistent with John's gospel because we often find three groups of people following Christ in John's gospel. When I, I've been preaching through John's gospel on Sundays in Upper Darby and in earlier sermons, uh, I called them uh, these three groups, the, the dedicated, the deceived, and the deceivers. Or there were those who called, were called by the Lord and they knew him as the Christ and they were his true followers. But there were those who made up the largest part of the crowd and through church history, they usually are the largest part of the crowd of those who are following Christ. And they, they are those who profess to be Christ followers, but were deceived because they were following him for the wrong reason. And you'll see that in John 2 and John 6 and other places in John's gospel. And then there were the deceivers or, or those who were obviously Christ's enemies and followed him only to trap him or to deceive others. In Matthew 13, the, the Lord told two parables. We call them the sower and the seed and the wheat and the tares. And the idea in both is that there are those who are false, who grow up with those who are true. 
And I believe the same principle applies here in the first verses of John 15. And we'll come back to Matthew 15 later in the sermon. But where there is no growth, there is no life. If a tree or a branch in this case, fails to bear fruit, it is proof that it is dead or dying. And if a professed Christian has no fruit, it is the proof that they have not the life of Christ abiding in them. I don't know what else you can draw out of that passage. The Lord Jesus leaves his people on earth to bear fruit because it is in us bearing fruit that we bring glory to God. God has left us on earth for one reason, one primary reason, and that is to glorify God. And in verse 8, you can see it in John chapter 15. If you're there, please look at John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. It's not as John Piper says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. No, but God is most glorified when we bear fruit or when it is evident that we have Christ as our life source and we are thereby conformed into his image. And as Christ obeyed the Father, so we are empowered and predestined to obey Christ. And bearing fruit and not bearing fruit is the difference between one who has an experiential or living union with Christ versus a supernatural or, or I'm sorry, versus a superficial or artificial or professed but no union with Christ. And today I will split the verses that we have before us in 1 through 5 in John 15 into four parts. In verse 1, we'll look at the general function of the Son and the Father in bearing fruit, in the Christian bearing fruit. In number 2, we'll look at verse 2, the specific function of the Father in fruit supervision, I'm calling it. And thirdly, we'll look at the specific function of the Son in Christian fruit bearing. And fourthly, in verses 4 through 5, the Christian's function in bearing fruit. So let's begin in verse 1, the general function, or we could say role, of the Father and the Son in fruit bearing. The Lord Jesus often used allegorical or symbolic language to make a point. And it is so healthy for us. Sometimes as a preacher, you have to be careful giving illustrations because often when people leave, the illustration will be the one thing that's left in their mind. So if your illustration is not effective and to the point, you can leave people um, thinking in the wrong direction, if I could say it that way. So, because that's the power of illustration. It's like painting a, a cartoon. Uh, and, and when you open a book and there's, there's, there's pictures in it, what do you do? You often go right to the pictures, uh, or, or at least we did when we were children. And, and because our mind works that way, and, and in Christ used symbolic language and allegorical language often. And, and, and at that time, they lived in an agrarian culture, or they lived in a culture where they were very familiar with farming and vineyards. So the Lord used the vine and its branches as an 
illustration or he was painting a picture for them that was very common in their minds. And in the first verse, the Lord starts by setting the roles or who plays what part in the production and the management of the vineyard in the kingdom of God. In this vineyard, Jesus Christ is pictured as the vine, is plain to see, or, or he is the main root of the plant. And since most of us are more familiar with trees, I think, than we would be familiar with vines, it might be better for us to think about Christ as the roots and, and the trunk of the tree and his people as the, as the branches that are, that are deriving our life from that trunk and, and, and the roots. And, and when the sap from the main part of the tree is not flowing to the branches, the branches die or are dead. And, and I think that we have all seen dead branches on a tree. And the father is the husbandman. Or we could say he's the vine dresser. Or for our understanding, we might say he's the gardener who, who prunes back the productive branches of the tree so that they bear more fruit. The man who knows his plants knows exactly where to cut the healthy branches. And, and from that incision will shoot two or three or even four other healthy branches. And, and the first branch will produce more Fruit, healthy fruit that will produce more fruit. The, 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 the fruit tree in an orchard only has one purpose. It only has one purpose, and that is to bear fruit. And if it is dead and consequently bearing no fruit, or if the branch is bearing no fruit, it is cut down and cast into the fire. But let us not forget our hermeneutics, or let us always be sharpening our ability to interpret the Bible. And each genre or style of writing must be interpreted accordingly. Or, or we don't interpret allegory the same way that we would interpret prophecy or, or poetry, per se. Or, or, or we must rightly divide the word of truth, as the apostle said. And, and an essential principle in interpreting allegories or parables is that we should never read into them more than what is plainly stated. Right? We use allegories with our children. We tell them stories. At least we all probably learned stories when, when we were children. And there's one main lesson to be learned in that story. So, so we should not think that there is more to the vine and the vine dresser than what is clearly marked out in the passage. And I think that will become helpful as we work through this. And there are four simple yet profound lessons in this parable that relate to the son's and the father's role in fruit bearing. One, Jesus Christ is the life source of every true believer as the vine is the life source of the branch. Two, if we have Christ as our life source, we will increase in fruit bearing, and without him, we can do nothing. Thirdly, the Father sets in motion the purification of those who are in Christ as the vine dresser, or husbandman, prunes and manages the vines. And fourth, the Father disposes of every dead branch, or I would say false professor 
But getting into more specifics, without breaking our hermeneutical rule, we come to our second heading in verse number two, the specific function of the Father in fruit supervision. You see it there in verse two. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. The Father takes away what is dead and purges or makes more productive what is alive and healthy. But the question is, how? How does the Father do this? The Father exposes who is false and purifies those who are true, I believe, and and I believe it is staunchly biblical. He does this through trials. He does it through trials. I made reference to Matthew 13 earlier. Please uh, turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 13. And there we see the parable of the sower and the seed. And in this parable, the Lord tells of three types of bad soil, three types of bad soil. And, and yet, what I, what I want to look at today is the second and the third, or the, we call them the stony ground hearers and the thorny hearers, are the ones I, I want us to give attention to. And, and they're found in 5 through 7. You see it there in Matthew 13, 5 through 7. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. And now the explanation of these two years is in 20 through 22. So jump down in your Bible, and you'll see there in verse 20. But he that received the seed into the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet, yet he not hath root in himself, but endureth for a while. For when the tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. The father is spoken of in scripture is he's viewed and spoken of as the one who preordains or predestines all things, or or the Father is orchestrating events, and and here specifically the trials that draw the saints closer to Christ. Follow me, are the same trials that drive the professed Christian away from Christ. There are those who believe or receive the word with joy, as we read, and and they enter the church and they endure for a while, or they remain in the church for months or years or even decades. But when persecution or tribulation comes, as Christ said, because of the word, they are offended, or they turn away and discontinue following Christ. It's interesting to me that Christ assumes that this persecution for the word will come. 
persecution must come because of the word, if it is being preached properly. If no one is ever offended because of what is being preached, then what is being preached, I think we can assume, is not of Christ. The Lord Jesus warned his apostle later, if you go back to John chapter 15, there in verses 18 and 19, he warns them, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. It's, and you've probably heard me mention it before, but it's, it's just such a pervasive problem is that Christians try to posture themselves and entire churches and denominations try to position themselves in a way that nobody will be offended or, or we don't want anybody to hate us. And that is devastating to the church. It is, it, I think it has devastated the church over the last 150 years. The Lord did not say that the world might hate us, but if we are in identification with Jesus Christ, the world, without a doubt, will and must hate us. And that hatred draws us who are in Christ closer to him. But for those who hold to Christ by profession only, they are offended or they, they don't want to be hated by the world because they're a part of the world. And this persecution will drive them away from the church. That's why the pulpit will deal with, with most of those types of things in the church. Because those who are of the world will be repelled by the hatred. And yet those in Christ will be drawn and knit together. How, how much you see it in the book of Acts in the book of Acts, the, the persecution came, or you could say, some say the prayer went up. The persecution came and power came down is the pattern in the book of Acts. And the persecution had to come in Acts for the church to prosper. And the persecution must come to this church and our church and every other church if we're going to prosper. And it's what binds the true people of God. It's what draws us closer to Christ but it is what repels the false believer and the church is purified. It's pruned back. Or those, friend, those branches, not necessarily pruned back, but those branches that are dead are disposed of, as we see in the text. Additionally, the Father will use a tribulation to drive away the false and purify the true believers. When some catechismic or disastrous situation comes upon those in the church, such as the death of a family member or, or contracting a terminal disease or any number of difficulties, those who are in Christ will cling tighter to him and know his comfort through the trial, not necessarily out of the trial. But the false convert blames God and, and says, where is God in my troubles? And can't find God in his troubles. But oh, the believer is, knows Christ through his trials. I remember the testimony of a man who was 
ministering in Haiti in 2010 during the earthquake. And when the earthquake came, he was in his house and he grabbed his two children and wife and the house was falling down around him, according to his testimony, as he was exiting. And, and for the next days and weeks, the difficulty was beyond what any of us could understand. But he said in that time, he was so close to Christ that when it ended, he went into a, a type of depression because he, he wanted that closeness with Christ again. And he didn't have it other than being in the midst of that extreme difficulty. It's the Father drawing those to Christ through the circumstance. And that same circumstance will repel the false believer. Furthermore, the thorny ground hearer falls away because of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches, we read in Matthew 13. Young people come into the church and they seem fully committed to Christ as they are involved in every activity. But then they get married and have a few children and the necessities of life can overwhelm them and, and they can hardly even make it to church anymore. And then the husband gets a promotion at work and, and quickly another promotion. And suddenly he's making five times as much money as he was just a couple of years ago. And with the more money comes more responsibility. And before he knows it, he has completely forsaken the faith. I remember being in Bible college and making a pact with two other men that we will die preaching. And those two men today, neither one of them even attend a church. Neither one attend a church. And the same thing I know happened to both of them. They got married, they got a career, and everything else according to what they were purposing to obey Christ was put to the side. But the true Christian follows the same apparent path, right? He, he gets married, he has children, digs into his work. But through each decision and phase of his life, he is on his knees seeking the Lord and ordering his life in a way that glorifies Christ by continuing to increase in his obedience to the commands of Christ because of his love for Christ and vital union with him. Or the Lord Jesus Christ is the source of his life. He's like Peter saying, where else are we going to go? I can't go anywhere else. I don't have anything else. I can't forsake Christ for my career because I don't have anything else but Christ. And if he doesn't do it in me, I can go nowhere. And people say they get promoted and make lots of money and they say it's a blessing from God. And Oh boy, I wonder if it's not the snare of the devil to lead them astray to the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Oh, young people, do not get caught in the snare of the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world and think that you have to make, oh, I have to make at least $80,000 by the time I'm 25. And by the time I'm 30, I'd have to project that I have to be making at least $100,000 a year and live for the things of this world. And Christ gets put aside and found 
to be a branch that is cut off and thrown into the fire. These are weighty matters dealing with heaven and hell. And may you consider your life on these terms and not on the world's terms, but according to Christ and what he is commanding you to do in order that you might bear fruit, bear more fruit, and bear much fruit for his glory. That's the only reason we're here. There's no other purpose you have on earth but to glorify God in bearing fruit. Praise his holy name that we can bear fruit in Christ. And in verse 3, we have the specific function of the Father. In verse 2, we have the specific function of the Son. But in verse 3, the specific function of the, of the Son and to the Father. But now are ye clean, in verse 3, through the word which I have spoken unto you. In John 8, 31 through 32, the Lord said, If ye continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We were in bondage to sin in this world and the devil. And Christ's word of truth of the gospel has made us free. When Christ told them that he would make them free, how did they react? They said, we're not in bondage. What are you talking about? The Lord's words not only set us free and cleanse us, but they show us that we are filthy and in our bondage, that our sin and self would send us straight to hell. But Christ's words, Christ's words show us our need and set us free by pointing us to him and to his glorious gospel. This also works in sanctification. When, when the Lord Jesus washed the apostles' feet at the beginning of John 13, it symbolized the need for the believers daily washing. And, and now by hearing the words of Christ, we are, we are sanctified in John 17. Is it verse 17, I believe? The words of Christ are the words of the entire Bible, I would contend, because every word was written of him and by him. And now it is his word that cleanses us and sustains us. If you were able to quickly turn to Ephesians chapter 5, you see it there in 5, 26 and 27, that you might sanctify and cleanse it through the washing of the water by the word that it is the church that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish the life that flows from christ to his people flows from his word Without the constant intake of the word of Christ, the believer will wither away and die, or at least the professed believer. The sap of the vine flowing to the branches is Christ's word. This is the specific function of Christ to his people. We are receiving spiritual life through his word. This is why the first sign of a new convert is that we cannot get enough of the Bible. It's like a newborn baby in need of milk. 
This is why the true Christian is daily in need of the scripture. This is why we need the Bible to memorize it, meditate upon it, listen to the Bible being preached and taught. And haven't you found it? The more that you get, the more that you want. The Lord Jesus feeds us through his word and through those words becoming life. We desire to know the Bible because we desire to know God and the glory of his person. We desire to know the Bible because we desire the gospel. Or we never get tired of that old story of Jesus Christ coming to earth and dying for poor, wretched sinners such as us. We desire to know the Bible because it is where we hear the voice of our beloved It's where we hear the voice of our beloved, who is Christ. However, the words of Christ, or the words of the Bible, are not just academic knowledge to the true Christian, but these words produce and nurture our fellowship with Christ. And it is the very life of Christ flowing to us, which leads us to our fourth heading First, we looked at the general function of the Son and the Father in bearing fruit. Second, the specific function of the Father in fruit supervision. Or the Father uses trials and persecution and daily tasks and responsibilities of life to purify the Christian and to remove the dead branches. Oh, thirdly, we looked at the specific function of the Son in, in, in fruit bearing. The, the sap that is flowing from Christ to his people is his word. And lastly, in verses 4 and 5, the Christians function in fruit bearing. Please look at the text there in 4 and 5 of John 15. Abide in me and I in you, and the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except that abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do Nothing. This is an exhortation or command to continue in Christ. The word abide can be translated as it is in other places, remain. Dear fellow saints, we need nothing else but to abide in Christ or hold to him by faith. This is an experiential union or a living and growing relationship with the Lord Jesus. We are commanded to abide in Christ. But the text says immediately after that, and I in you. And I in you. Can we force Christ to remain in us as part of the command? One commentator makes this comment about this phrase, I and you. He said, the latter is a promise encouraging the former. For as Christ is formed in our hearts, in the hearts of his people, he continues there as the living principle of all grace, end quote. The Lord makes this promise, you see it in John 15, in verse number 16. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth Fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Christ has chosen us, and as much as we have been chosen by him, 
to be justified is as much as we have been chosen by him to be sanctified. And we are made like Christ in our justification, and we are made like Christ in our sanctification. But in a distinct and separate way, yet they are connected. And let me explain that to you. In our justification, Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to us or put to our account. Please hear me on this. Please. Or it is Christ's righteousness is not, is not infused in us in justification, or, or it, is, it is objective, or it is a foreign righteousness, or it is outside of us, or it is not a part of who we are because it is a perfect righteousness. Or, it, or to be justified means to be, it doesn't mean to be righteous. To be justified does not mean to be righteous. It means to be declared righteous. Because of the righteousness of Christ, it sounds like a fine point, but it is monumentally important that you understand this. This this is not, as I mentioned, infused. It is not an imparted righteousness and justification, but it is, as the Apostle says several times in Romans 4 and 5, it is an imputed righteousness, which is the same word used in Genesis 15. It, it is, the word means to put to the account. It's like someone putting $1,000 in my bank account. Christ's righteousness is put into our account. We must get this right, lest we be found outside of Christ. In Romans chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, some of my favorite verses in evangelism, but oh, how well they explain this point. What a blessing Romans 4 and 5 are. How would we know the depth of this teaching of imputed righteousness outside of these chapters and what a precious and needful doctrine it is. But look in Romans 4, 4 and 5. There, The apostle under inspiration of the Spirit wrote, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. There it is. Imputed, counted for righteousness, even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Our holy and righteous standing before God in the courtroom of heaven solely stands on the perfection of one man. In Romans 5.19, and that one man is the God-man, Jesus Christ, minus anything that we have done or who we are. But this perfect righteousness of Christ is given as a gift, and it is a complete righteousness. And it is the means by which we enter heaven. Did you get that part? I'm going to move on to sanctification, but we can't move on to the righteousness and imparted righteousness in sanctification until this is firmly planted in our minds. Because our default position is always to go back to what we're doing or who we are to gain favor with God. And it must be utterly rejected and see that this righteousness that we have in Christ is a foreign righteousness. It is an objective righteousness It is not an infused righteousness. It is imputed. 
And we are, eh, are we, is the question completely abandoned to Christ's righteousness? Or have we forsaken all attempts or efforts to prove and validate our own supposed righteousness? And are we solely hoping in the perfections of another to gain favor with God? This is at the heart of what it means to believe in Jesus for salvation. And if by the power of the Holy Spirit we have been utterly relinquished or turned over to Christ as our only hope of eternal life, then and only then are we brought into the process of sanctification. Or because by the indwelling Holy Spirit we have fully and only trusted in Christ for our justification, we will then fully trust Christ for our sanctification even though I do believe sanctification is synergistic, which is another topic, and sanctification is a process, is a process by which every believer is being transformed or changed into Christ's image, not for salvation, not for justification, but for the glory of God and for the character of Jesus Christ to be displayed on earth. It's staggering that we would be used to display the character of God on earth. What a high calling. What a blessed privilege that Jesus Christ is our righteousness or his righteousness has been given to us by grace apart from who we are and what we have done, barring faith which is given to us. And Jesus Christ is our sanctification or his life is our life in an actual and animated or, or vibrant and tangible way or in a way that we can see and recognize and works out in our life. Therefore, the remedy for not bearing fruit is to abide in Christ. Or as we feel our own inadequacy or failure, and may we feel it in the depths of our heart. May I feel it. But in that time of great need, may we look unto Christ and find that we are made adequate in him. Or Jesus Christ is our sufficiency or abundance. Because he never failed. And our source of spiritual life is in him. And we are able by him to walk in truth and obedience. Or when we feel ourselves to be faithless as we are without him. May we look unto the faithful one as we did when we were born again or when we were justified and we are made faithful in a real and practical way because of him. And when pride has overtaken our hearts and as it so commonly does, may we look unto the meek and lowly one, the one who stood before his accusers and opened not his mouth and when we consider him, we partake of his humility or his lowliness becomes a part of the fabric of our being. And when we find hypocrisy or pretense lurking in our hearts, as it is in each one of us, in our most sincere Christian duties, we must confess that there's an air of self 
But in that time, may we look unto the one who never had one ounce of insincerity in him. Let us look unto our most pure Savior and his purity and sincerity is infused into the very, our very being or we take on his character. And when we find hatred and its offspring of jealousy and envy wanting to raise its ugly head, may we at that moment consider how Jesus Christ loved us when we were most despicable or in a hateful state that we were in, in our unconverted state, and in considering his love toward us in our undeserving state. Oh, dear saints, do not deprive yourself. Meditate often on your condition of hatred without Christ and your utter rebellion and how he was so favorable to you. He was so favorable to me when I deserved nothing but hell. And upon that contemplation, Christ's love will be poured into our hearts. It, 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 it will partake of his love. It will become a part of our character. And we will be able to love our enemies. And if we can love our enemies, certainly we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ this is the meaning of the sap of Christ coming into the branches. That his life is our life. His character is being put into his people. Not for justification, but in sanctification. And all that Jesus Christ is, is who, is who we are becoming. Because his life flows through his people and all our inward wickedness is turning into godly character or our pride is being turned into Christ's humility and our hatred is being turned into Christ's love and so on. Because we are drawing our sap from the vine or the branches are drawing our life-giving sap from the trunk and the roots who is Christ. And the Father is preordaining every circumstance in our life to bring us closer to Christ, to be made more like Christ in the beauty and the power of his character. In Romans 8, 29, for who he foreknew, he did predestinate, predestinate to, to do what? To, to be conformed into the image of his Son, that Christ's character will be displayed on the earth. God will be glorified and that is our purpose and meaning. It's why we're here. But we will never be able to turn to him and trust him in a way in our sanctification until we have come to Christ in our justification. Or we already, we already have all that he is in our position, as theologians call it, or, or in our judicial standing in heaven. And now on earth we are being made like Christ, literally. And one day the two will come together. It's like the two are coming together. Now we have this perfect standing in Christ and our justification. They could never stand. I'm sorry, they could never change. And we're being conformed to his image on earth. And it's like the two are coming together. And one day they will come together. And it is what is called glorification. 
in Philippians 3.21, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. That one day, dear saint, the two will be made one. Our justified state, our sanctified state, will be unified. And that's why you cannot be in Christ unless we are bearing fruit. It is, it is a sobering reality. And Christ spoke this to those apostles, as I mentioned at the beginning, who were obviously in Christ. They would never fall away. Yet he spoke this to them, I believe, because he wanted us to hear it in his church throughout the ages to hear this. And yet, how humbling it is, how much joy it brings to us who are in Christ that we can bear fruit. And dear Christian, if you lack fruit, go to Christ. Abide in Christ is the admonishment. Abide in him. Look unto him through his word. If you lack love, derive your love from Christ. If you lack humility, and certainly we all do, Gain your humility from Christ and what he says in his word. And you will bear fruit and bring glory to God by his grace. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we have this passage before us today that that sobers us, Lord, that those will be cast into the fire that bear not fruit. And yet at the same time, this passage brings great joy that we can bear fruit. What a miracle of miracles that we can glorify Christ in these bodies. It's certainly by your grace. We thank you, Lord. Oh, God, you know where each person listening stands. Work in the depths of our hearts, Lord God. No, don't leave me out, Lord. Search my heart, please, Lord. And may we be found those who abide in Christ and bear fruit for the glory of his name. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.